Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, April 18th, 2008. This week, episode 78 comes to you from beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes of Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, good afternoon, Joe. Pleasure to be here. Good afternoon, Cliff. And the wingman, Chris Boisel at the controls. Good afternoon. All right. Good afternoon, Chris. Looks like we have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on the line as well. We'll bring him in here in a little bit. Oh. I think he's still muted, but that's all right. That's his cue. We'll bring him in back, back in, in a little bit. And uh, today's segments are going to include the microband trivia question. David Governo and Marianne Brown of the Governo Law Firm. We're calling this Boston Legalese today, I believe. Cliff, that's right. That was uh, the that's, that's the announcements. Um, the roundtable will be back at the end with everybody and round things up. The Z-Man and the Wingman and I have been working hard on the iaqradio.com website. Every week after the show, we add a little blog and uh, a little new information is posted every week. If you get a chance, go visit the iaqradio.com website. Before we start, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right. To contact the show, you can just call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. You can just press 1 and join the show now. You can also stream the show through the Internet with or without downloading the TalkShoe software. You've got two options on that now. You can also text us a message by going to that TalkShoe website and following the directions to get yourself a PIN number. And uh, you can also direct connect with the widget. They're working on all kinds of ways of getting people on board here. We also appreciate suggestions and will answer questions, take requests, etc. If you email me at joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com, or Cliff Zlotnick, that's Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, at unsmoke.com. You can also get IAQ console renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz, Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to send it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Well, first, we're sorry to report there were no correct answers to last week's trivia question. The microband trivia question for Friday, April 18, 2008, comes from the field of environmental law and deals with the largest environmental case ever settled in U.S. history. We want you to tell us three things about the case. Who were the defendants? What was the amount of the settlement? And who was the plaintiff's? law firm. 
Okay. All right. Now, you can always go to our website and go to the trivia link, answer the past questions. Actually, there's only one past question now. They've all been answered except last week's. And uh, go there, log on, and get yourself uh, prizes from the Z-Man here for right. answering the right question. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it over to Cliff to do the honors for uh, Dave Governo, but first... Let's do the uh, governor. I'll get it right here yet. Let's do the uh, intro music, right? There you go. <laughs> David M. Governo is the founding partner of the Governor Law Firm in Boston, Massachusetts. Mr. Governo advises business owners on risk management, insurance, and claims. He's been invited to present papers at IEQ conferences throughout the country. He was recently voted as a New England super lawyer by his peers and is considered one of the leading attorneys in the restoration field. He's taught many courses for the water loss and disaster recovery industry and recently authored a chapter in a book on mold, an article in cleaning and restoration on three ways restoration industry association members can reduce their legal liability, and an article in ASHRAE IEQ applications on soil vapor intrusion. Last October, Mr. Governor and Ms. Brown authored an article on the green building requirements and their in applications in IE Connections newspaper. Mr. Governor is speaking about seven ways to lose your company overnight at the Crawford Contractor Connections National Conference in June. He won the first mold case ever tried to a jury in Rhode Island. He is on the board of directors of a subsidiary of the National Center for Healthy Housing. All right, and we've also got Marianne Brown of the Governor Law Firm. She joined the law firm as a consul in 2007 brings with her over 16 years of experience in a broad range of complex litigation, including first chair jury trial experience in complex real estate construction and engineering matters, toxic tort, and environmental litigation. Ms. Brown has extensive litigation and trial experience in a broad range of complex matters, including case preparation and final negotiation of a $38 million settlement of the Paoli Rail Yard Superfund dispute on behalf of the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority and Conrail. This settlement was the second largest verdict or settlement in the state of Pennsylvania in 2005. Ms. Brown was also lead trial counsel in the defense of a $4.5 million commercial breach of contract claim involving show business, marine engineering, and the 1999 Millennium Sound and Light Show on the Delaware River in a three-week federal jury trial which led to a defense verdict for the client as well as recovery of a $650,000 cross-claim. We'll have to ask about that. That sounds interesting. Ms. Brown is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Law School and Harvard College. She's a member of the Board of Directors of the American Poetry Review and recently spoke at the RIA convention in Texas about the pros and cons of asbestos and lead abatement. Welcome, David and Marianne. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We really would like to get into this mold trial, and maybe the first segment could kind of be entitled Anatomy of a Mold Jury Trial. And what was at issue in, in this particular case that you had taken to a jury in Rhode Island? Well, uh, good morning, Joe, or afternoon. Good afternoon, Cliff. Yeah. The... Um, case we tried in Newport was both a personal injury and a property damage claim. And so the plaintiff was claiming permanent brain damage from being exposed to mold in a house she had rented from my client, who was the homeowner. And that was the, the you know nuts and bolts of what the case was about. How was your firm specifically selected to, to try the case? Did you know the did you know the client previously? Had you done business with them, or did their insurance company locate you and retain you? The the, the client uh, did some research herself and contacted me individually 
uh, separate from the insurance company. The insurance company had its own lawyer there representing her as well. So we we had uh, actually three lawyers trying the case. One, I was her personal counsel. There was an insurance company lawyer. And then there was a separate lawyer because we made a counterclaim on her behalf against the tenant who was suing her for uh, property damage, actually, because the tenant would not allow my client to gain access to the property to fix the problem that was causing the mold. And uh, and uh, that required a separate lawsuit to evict the, the, the tenant to get her pro her property out of the, the, the house so that the broken pipe could be fixed and the mold cleaned up. Is it unusual for there to be two different uh, defense counsels on the same case, one hired by the plaintiff, or I'm, I'm sorry, one hired by the defendant and also another one provided by the defendant's insurance coverage? It, it probably is unusual in that it doesn't happen all the time. The typical situation is that you're, you're just defended by the insurance company's lawyer, and that's uh, fairly uh, okay for most people's uh, concerns. In this case, there was a punitive damage claim against the uh, property owner, and I was specifically hired uh, for the property damage claim. And under Rhode Island law, I mean the punitive damage claim, under Rhode Island law where there is a punitive damage claim, the insurance company's lawyer is not allowed to represent the insured. The, the insurance company is obligated to hire a separate lawyer at the uh, individual insured's decision as to who that is and pay that lawyer. So I was actually paid by the insurance company, but uh, specifically uh, representing the insured. What year was this, Dave? It was uh, June of 06. Okay. So it was almost a year and a half now. Uh, and but at the time, it was the first, uh, and I, it could be the only mold case that I know of that's ever been tried to a, a verdict in Rhode Island. What was the alleged what was the cause of the mold claim what what resulted in you know what was the uh, event that caused this mold uh, the, the, the uh, tenant moved into this house it was a single family house not far from the water and um, the she moved in she wasn't living there full time she was living there part time she was living with her boyfriend part of the time and at some point in time when she was cleaning up the kitchen she opened the kitchen cabinet under the sink and found some slimy mold on the uh, on the back of the uh, wall, and that's that was the genesis of the whole mold claim. And um, interestingly enough, it was complicated because this tenant was an antiques dealer, and she would use the house to store her antiques. And of course, you know, antiques being what they are, they're inherently moldy, and so that that further complicated things. But after after she identified the mold. She started going on the internet to find out what she could find out about mold, and she basically uh, scared herself silly uh, to the point where she was taking some steps that just made no sense. She was, you know, uh, got caught up in the whole mold hysteria uh, business and started uh, trooping around the country visiting doctors to try to treat this uh, problem that, uh, you know, the jury found that just didn't, uh, didn't exist. You know, what sort of expert witnesses did she use to help her, you know, try to prove her case? Well, she was treating with uh, Dr. Johanning, um, and she, she, uh, we took his deposition. Because of some legal problems, the plaintiffs withdrew him as a witness uh, because there was an issue with uh, us getting the documents that he was relying on. So we got him basically excluded as a witness. Under Daubert? And it was under an agreement because they okay. were... Basically, he showed up at his deposition a week before the trial with 997 pages of documents that we had not been provided before, and um, we moved that the court preclude him from testifying and the other experts because the plaintiffs had not given us this documentation. And sort of as a compromise deal, the plaintiffs agreed to jettison Dr. Johanning uh, if we did not um, press our claims that the other experts be precluded as well. And the these, this was a, a you know very uh, experienced plaintiffs' attorneys. They um, called in experts from around the country, people you probably heard of, a uh, Dr. Lipsy from Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, 
she was also being treated by <coughs> Richie Shoemaker. <coughs> Excuse me. He testified, and they called in a neuropsychologist from New York who uh, testified that, in his opinion, she had permanent brain damage. And that was the genesis of the case. How did you, how did you offset this testimony? I mean, it's pretty scary to a jury. You know, they hear this that you know mold's toxic. It it can make you sick. I mean, did you use common sense? Did you use you know medical testimony on the opposite side? How did you do that? Well, it, it was it was scary because the, the Dr. Lipsy and those guys had actually identified stachybotrys in the house, and there were questions about whether, you know, it, it, it was complicated because a lot of the testing was not done until long time after this lady no longer lived in the property. She moved out within weeks of finding the mold and then just locked the house down so that nobody could get into it. And um, so by the time she got testing done, it was, you know, six months or so after she had left. And the whole question was whether that mold had developed in the interim while the house was all locked up and um you know obviously moldy it was it was further complicated because the tenant identified some mold remediation person who she thought would come in and fix this uh, my client approved that person coming in and doing it just as the tenant had requested this guy came in sprayed some chemicals on the mold without removing it and uh then later after he was called back in a week or so when it didn't work you know, he uh, recommended a more traditional remediation that would, you know, include the actual removal of the mold, you know, damaged uh, pieces of the house. At that point, the tenant had lost um, sort of confidence in everybody, uh, wouldn't even go with her own expert to fix it, and things started to deteriorate to the point where uh, multiple uh, legal actions had to be prosecuted to eventually get her to allow my client access to the property to move her stuff up. As it was, it had to, they had to get a sheriff in with, to change the locks to basically uh, take control over the property after being in and out of court multiple times. So, and, and, and at the end of all this, you have a jury of, I don't know how many people were in the jury on this case, Dave? Six. Six people, and they come back Six. with uh, what kind of a ruling? They, well, they came back that there was no damage done by any mold that was there. And, you know, when you, you interestingly enough, all through the plaintiff's um, case, they, they were talking about this nasty mold under the sink, and, you know, you would expect that it was like out of a, a science fiction movie, that the mold would just, you'd open the door and it would come at you. But when we showed the pictures, in our case, of the actual mold that was discovered under the sink, the, the jury was just that you know you you could see their jaws drop that we were here for this trial for that little bit of mold it was just a uh, classic story of a picture uh, tells a thousand words you know that was the that was the situation. Now, I'm curious. This is 2006, and and prior to that, um, how long? I know we've talked before about this. Um, getting the expert witness testimony on the health effects has been difficult in the past. Is it happening more often now? You, you, from a plaintiff's perspective, Correct. Yeah, you know, there's a huge debate um, that, that continues on to this day as to the health effects of mold with all of the major scientific bodies coming out uh, and, and taking a strong position after looking at it over and over again that you know, mold has health consequences but they're along the lines of, of an allergic reaction, possibly an exacerbation of a pre-existing asthma, but not the type of uh, brain damage that this woman was claiming in this particular case. And I think that's part of what, that, what hurt the plaintiffs in this case is that the traditional mold-related symptoms that we see all the time, itchy eyes, runny nose, whatever, um, that, that those sort of respiratory symptoms were totally absent in this case. So what you would expect to see in a mold-related claim was not there. What you would not expect was there, at least in the allegation part of it, where this lady was claiming that she couldn't remember where she put things, she couldn't function, she was basically brain damaged because of this. And, and this was a relatively young woman. I think she was uh, just in her early 50s. 
So, you know, you would think that she would be able to function, but she claimed she couldn't work. And, uh, you know, we called an expert um, who came in and testified that, 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 you know, first off, that much, much of this mold that was found was caused by the plaintiff's abandoning of the, the premises and locking it up and leaving it like a terrarium for, for many, many months, including over the summer. Um, when she finally did take her stuff out, she hired somebody to do a decontamination along the lines of, you know, nuclear radiation. <laughs> they set up, uh, you know, d you know, multi-stage decontamination um, section to, to remove the mold from her antiques, which is just, you know, sort of ironic. And, uh, and we had an expert to come in and talk about the, the latest uh, uh, medicine and, and science in the area, including at that point, I think the CDC had just come out with some new, uh, new pronouncement that basically um, established that the you know health effects of mold did not include brain damage. So, all told, that um, you know convinced the jury that this woman did not uh, become ill from living in the house for the long period of time that she was actually there. Cliff and Joe, this is Marianne. Yes. I just thought I would comment that the listeners might be thinking, well, this is a once in a lifetime crazy lady out there. But I'm here to tell you that since I've joined uh, David's practice, we have a number of mold cases, and some of them have very similar fact patterns. Some of them involve these. We have another case in the office right now with these same facts where the people even tested for mold and no mold was found, but they were sure there was mold, and they abandoned the premises and left it there um, like a terrarium, and eventually mold was found. What do you think causes this, Marianne? Is it people being afraid because of uh, publicity in the, you know, on the internet or on the news, or is it people that are? I mean, I, I got to assume these people aren't all just greedy, trying to take a buck off somebody. Maybe I'm wrong. I think you're right. I mean, I always give uh, the plaintiff the benefit of the doubt when I'm hearing their side of the story, and that. There are a lot of people out there who genuinely believe that they are suffering physical consequences from exposure to mold or, or other toxins. Uh, but I also believe that there are forces at work in our society that encourage them to look for some kind of a payout from their landlord or from the insurance company for the landlord that might help them to... Um, finance a new a new home or new new furniture or, or whatever and it just seems to me that in our parents generation that wasn't necessarily the, your first response to a problem it, didn't you just get out a uh, a bottle of uh, bleach and, and clean it and not give it another thought if you found some mold under your sink well let me ask this i've got a text message here a text question from a listener and i'm sure you're both familiar with these documents, and they want to know about the difference between the um, ACOEM statement, which was the statement that these things can't occur, basically, and the Institute of Medicine document, which I think gave it a little different take on things. Dave, can you comment, or Marianne, Marianne on the um, how the Institute of Medicine document has changed things, if it has? Well, I, I probably can guess the identity of the uh, person writing in, but I won't. <laughs> yeah, uh, let me just say, to follow up on that comment that Marianne just made, um, I don't necessarily think it's all monetarily, monetarily driven, this, this tendency for people to want to blame something for whatever they're feeling or concerned about, or, or if what they're looking for is answers. And sometimes the... the uh, whether it's um, mold or some some other uh, you know toxin or substance or thing in society that they can point to, even if it's just a diagnosis of some uh, uh, medical medically recognized diagnosis, it gives them some sort of uh, um, satisfaction that they've gotten to the bottom of their problem, and that's one of the the issues that I would like to flag for people who are, are the you know so-called so consumer advocates on, in this area who think that mold causes brain damage and all sorts of things is that is that the sort of opportunity cost that people run when they they go down this route thinking that they found the reason for their problems 
if, if it is not really the reason for their problems, then the real reason for the problems that they should be looking for and they maybe should find through some traditional med medical techniques will go undiagnosed and, you know, the, the cure that they might seek has been obscured from them by their own sort of uh, internet, uh, uh, you know, playing, playing doctor. So that's, that's an aside comment. In terms of, of the, the specifics as far as the, 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 the medical and scientific literature on this, it's, it's coming out all, of the t all the time. I, I, you know, I don't feel like I could comment on a particular um, passage of a two, two different lengthy documents right here on the spot. Um, I, you know, one of the things that we try to caution our young attorneys in the office is to is to not to give uh, legal conclusions without knowing all the facts. And I typically I'd like to see what passages people are concerned about to give some idea of why they may have developed in a different way or why one group came out slightly differently than the other. But the bottom line on all of this, um, you know, medical and scientific stuff, at least the, the more accepted uh, stuff, is that you know, mold has health effects, but they're limited. And if you reduce and eliminate the exposure, you're going to eliminate the symptoms. You know, I, I, I really like the, the statement that you made about this self-diagnosis. Uh, you know, oftentimes people do, uh, you know, I have a headache and there's mold, therefore mold gave me the headache. And they don't get better because they make their own diagnosis and they just focus on finding this answer rather than thinking about, and it could be chemical emissions, it could be particulate, there could be a lot of things in that environment because it's true that a wide range of contaminants can allegedly cause the same symptoms. I guess my question is, how do we take responsibility and legal liability and, and properly align that? You know, I think in many situations, they're looking for some way to align their symptoms with something, you know, with, with, and make someone else responsible for it. Well, the, the, the sort of standing joke among the, the lawyers and the judge in this case uh, was that was that this, this woman was really going through menopause and didn't want to face oh. it. Okay. <laughs> it's it's that, that that came, that, oh. that, you know, and whether it's true or not, there are symptoms and there are changes, and if you're looking for something to blame it on that's other than what you've got going, you know, and, and there may be money at the end of that rainbow, then you would yeah. for, for those kinds of uh, arguments. Marianne, it sounds like you may have a comment on that. No, I'm laughing, but it, it's true. That hasn't happened to me yet, boys. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, you know, while we're while we're talking while we're talking about this, um, you know, I, you know, I would admit to on more than one occasion talking to someone on the telephone providing technical support or we get calls you know asking about products or our products other people's products and and so on and so forth and you know i really don't know how to adequately this you know define the person that i'm talking to so i think within the company we may use the term mold crazy and you know, because I think they are. I think they, they go on the Internet and, and so on and so forth. And a lot of times, based on what they say and, you know, based on what the symptoms are and based on their unwillingness to, you know, listen to reason or to look at other things, I sometimes think that there may be some mental illness at work. Uh, can you comment on that? I do think that it is. It's a very hard thing to diagnose. And, you know, I have had other chemical exposure cases where I've had a psychiatric evaluation of the, of the plaintiff as part of my defense. And, you know, and, and, and that, that was a, a multiple chemical sensitivity case involving exposure to uh, some indoor air having to do with, uh, um, it was, it was uh, copy machines and things like this. It was, and and you know the the, the psychiatrist who evaluated this plaintiff in that particular case said that she scored extremely high on all of the lie scales that were built into this this um, the test that he administered to her. So it's possible that you you've got to do this with experts. That's the key. 
You've got to look at what the plaintiffs have for experts, marshal your own experts, figure out what, what defenses are going on. You know, often you can just look at a, a real uh, down-and-dirty factual investigation. You know, the plaintiff is claiming that mold in his or her uh, employment at, at work causes him to or her to be, you know, have headaches or whatever. So we'll go and test the person's house where they're not complaining of symptoms and find that there's more mold in the house than there was at the work. So the likelihood that it was, you know, the mold from the work is pretty, you know. Remote. Yeah. I, I was going to comment earlier that uh, we do find with the plaintiffs that, um, by and large, they have a lot of other health concerns. We don't it seems to me, maybe I'm generalizing, David, but it seems to me that oftentimes these plaintiffs don't really come in perfectly healthy and happy and at, at, at ease in their lives other than the mold exposure. There often seem to be a lot of other things going on. For example, we have a plaintiff right now who's been smoking two to three packs of cigarettes a day since she was nine years old. Now, that's got to have had an enormous impact on her body and she has a lot of a lot of health problems as, as a re result of that and it does get down to what we call in the law establishing causation and this was this whole conversation has been about about establishing causation what we're describing is very similar to you know if you your child gets a rash and you go to the doctor and the doctor asks you all these questions did you change your laundry detergent recently did you uh, have, have you been has you been exposed to anything recently? It's a little investigative uh, process, and David's describing how we do that process and how we use experts to facilitate it. Okay. Well, next week we'll have someone with the opposite opinion. So those of you out there listening, we'll come back and join us again next week. But let me go to another legal issue, David. I know you had commented on this, and it was that there was a. An Ohio couple awarded a $2.2 million compensatory damage award, and it was based on their um, use of the Ohio Consumer Practices Act and that they claimed there were unfair and deceptive practices that occurred when they bought this home that had become moldy. Do you see that as um, something that we'll see more of now that they've been successful on this particular case? Well, it's... it's Possibly, it's the the law itself is dependent on the the law in the various in the in the particular jurisdiction that you're in. A lot of states have enacted consumer protection statutes aimed at balancing the playing field between, um, you know, uh, people who are selling things. Typically, and uh, it, it affects people like car salesmen. That's the typical consumer product case. But we have an imbalance of uh, power between somebody selling something and somebody buying something, the government has stepped in and set up some special rules called consumer protection statutes that give uh, uh, plaintiffs who are, uh, believe that they were harmed by, as a consumer some special um, deals. And the special deal often includes, um, an first off, a lot of these statutes have an opportunity to settle so that they try to get the parties together to come. You know, you, the consumer makes a demand, whatever it is, $10,000 to fix the leaky roof. The builder comes back and says, you know, forget it, it doesn't leak, or it wasn't our fault. Then then if they, the consumer has to fight that battle, the consumer could possibly win two or three times the actual damages and uh, his or her attorney's fees as a result of a successful prosecution. It just depends on the particular statute. It could well... Um, be a trend because, you know, as, as advocates for our clients, we try to take every step possible to get them the best deal. And as an advocate for a consumer buying a house that something went wrong with, you know, that lawyer is going to look to get that person the most money possible. So I think it's impossible that you could have a trend in using consumer protection laws. Part of the legal issue is how broadly these things can be uh, applied. And, you know, obviously in Ohio, you've got uh, buying a house is buy, is, as a consumer uh, triggers that statute. Do you know if that's common in other states, David? I, I know that's off the top of your head, so, you know, obviously if you don't know, just tell me. But is it a common statute? You know, I, I, was, I 
was asked about this, and I didn't do any survey of the of the states across the country. So I don't know what percentage of states have this kind of statute. So the short answer is I can't answer it. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors again and say hello to the doctor, Dr. Wow, and then we'll be right back with you. First, I want to make sure that we thank Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. We want to thank Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. Thanks to John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractor shop at jondon.com. Let's see if we can get our technical director, Dr. Dr. Dietrich Wow, on the line. Hello, Dieter, are you with us? Yes, I certainly am, and I listened very carefully. Good afternoon, David and Marianne. How are you doing? I don't know. We had. Oh, there we go. We took them off the mute. Hello. A little, a little. uh, Yeah, maybe there is a delay from here to Boston or something like that. Uh, We're we're back with you now, Dieter. (laughs) Okay. Any uh, questions or comments, Dieter? uh, Well, yeah, I think I made that comment the last time. I mean, this is tricky, tricky business. The first comment I have is, why would anybody be reluctant to fix the leak, which in turn (laughs) um, started a mold problem in triple quotation marks? I mean, uh, it it, it seems to be whether there's mold or not, I fix the leak. And I I heard that so often. Oh, the landlord said, nah, forget about it. I don't want to do that. That that to me doesn't make, it's, Common sense tells me there's something wrong. On the other hand, you know, if somebody in a normal house where there is a little bit of mold in the bathroom or underneath the kitchen sink or in the laundry room or something like that, I mean, if you're a normal person, I don't think it really will have a a detrimental effect on you. Now, if somebody has asthma or something like this, I may go along with that, and I said, yep, perhaps there was a cause and an effect. But, uh, yeah, and, and I'm not talking about uh, uh, a, a place, a, a wet basement or crawl space where somebody is living or in a condemned house or under a bridge or something like that. I mean, I'm talking about a normal house, and all the mold problems that I have investigated were in normal It wasn't a, a decrepit place that you know, should be torn down. I mean, these were nice apartments, and, and there was some water intrusion, and somebody complained. But, so we are on the bottom of, that, of the famous dose-response curve. In other words, um, we are not in, a, in the middle of a chemical plant uh, where there are, or in a spray booth, or uh, something like that, where they are indeed measurable and relatively high um, concentrations of VOCs or whatever else it may be. So that, to me, uh, it tells me that, yes, we do have a, a, a problem to show that there really was a cause and an effect. Dieter, it sounds like you're in, you know, I'm looking at a comment from one of our listeners here, and I, I want to address this to David. It said, uh, basically, it sounded like if if the remediation company had done things right in the first place or the owner had done things right in the first place, it probably wouldn't have escalated to the point where you were in court. Yeah, it's quite possible. You know, I, to follow up on Dieter's comment, that there was not even um, – until the house was basically torn apart, maybe nine and 12 months after this whole saga started, there was not a recognition that there was a leak. Uh, this, the, the theory is, is that when the tenant was moving in, she, she put some, uh, some, some sort of a picture or something up on the wall in the kitchen and hit a pipe with a nail, and that's what caused the leak. Now. There was a slow leak and so forth, but until the the, uh, the there was some demolition done, there was no recognition that the leak was actually occurring. 
And so if, if it had been properly remediated at the beginning, it, it, it would not have been a problem. But it, it, part of the problem was that this um, was sort of the, the scare that the tenant got herself into by going on the Internet and reading all of this nasty stuff about mold. I mean, it, it, uh, that's what, what started the whole thing. Well, David, I'm sure you run into situations like Dieter was explaining, or maybe not, where, you know, you do have a home that has some significant contamination in a crawl space or in a basement or or um, in in wall cavities um, what what's your response then to the building owner or to the you know you're typically working for the defense I'm, I'm assuming what's your response then get it fixed yeah. you know and if that if that is causing somebody who's living in the house some harm that you know in, in whatever kinds of symptoms or whatever you try to, you know, assess how much harm that's caused and come up with a dollar amount that's going to compensate the person for the harm that your client caused. I'm not trying to say that, that oh, you know, all my clients are uh, lily, you know, white, uh, never did anything wrong uh, type. We get some clients who are in, you know, deep hot water and, you know, and they messed up and somebody got hurt as a result. And we have to come up with a number that's going to compensate that person for the loss that the client caused. And, and that happens all the time. All right. And we're going to try and bring on a couple of listeners here in a minute. But before we do, I, I had a question going back to Mary Ann's uh, bio here. And, Cliff, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I just want to ask you a quick question on what is um, – Let's see. It said here that you were the lead trial counsel in the defense of a $4.5 million commercial breach of contract involving show business, marine engineering, and the 1999 Millennium Sound and Light Show on the Delaware River. And, <laughs> uh, what happened there? And I'm, I'm really curious about the defense verdict for the client as well as recovery of a $650,000 cross-claim. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I was laughing uh, with David. I'm not sure why I kept that in my bio for an indoor air quality uh, radio show. Okay. But, but, <laughs> but it, you know, in many ways, it was perhaps more interesting. Uh, that was a, a, a lawsuit involving a big show that was supposed to happen on the night of the, uh, New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1999. And uh, my client... Um, it's a uh, Hollywood entertainment firm that puts on these huge shows all around the world and uh, contracted with um, the Delaware River Port Authority, which runs the Delaware River along uh, Philadelphia, between Philadelphia and New Jersey, to put on this big show on barges that were going to float along in the water with um, a big sound and light show. And uh, in turn, my client contracted with a marine engineering firm to uh, supply barges that would be stable and strong enough to, to uh, carry all this sound and light equipment, fire technology, enormous screens of water from which movies would be projected. And um, after that amount of money had been spent by the Port Authority, that over $4 million, uh, we discovered that there were fatal flaws in the engineering of the barges and that they would not withstand um, the weight of the equipment. And the show had to be canceled. Uh, and and uh, we were sued, my client was sued for the failure of the show and, and in turn um, pointed the finger to his uh, consultant and uh, engineering firm. So I was on the side of being the plaintiff and in, in sort, of, sort of establishing that the responsibility really lay with the folks who had designed the barges for... Uh, my client, and I was uh, fortunate enough, uh, after a long trial in court, in federal court in Pennsylvania, to have the jury agree with me that my client had done nothing wrong. It planned an absolutely fantastic show. My client, by the way, um, used to be the creative di director at Disney and created the big sound and light shows that you see if you ever take your family to Disney at Magic Kingdom or at, at Epcot, those night sound and light shows. So he's a he's a great great guy who knows exactly what he's doing, and the jury uh, believed it. 
I've got a, let's see if we can bring a listener on to ask a question. Uh, Stacy, are you, let's see if we got Stacy Champion on the line. Yep, I am. Hello, Stacy. Do you have a question for, for David or Marianne? I do have a question for David. Hey, David, it's Stacy Champion. Hi, Stacy. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Fine. Hey, I have a kind of interesting project right now that's set to go to trial this summer. Um, and it's been in litigation for almost five years and was based on mold in the beginning. And I'm actually working for defense for the designer and the builder and have gone out there on numerous occasions and done all kinds of sampling. And there wasn't any mold um, the first few two times that I was out there. Um, now there is mold, but we've confirmed that it's actually from uh, dog urine that has wicked up drywall. And I guess uh, this project especially is so frustrating to me um, because I work on so many projects where there is an actual, you know, issue. And I just don't understand how something can stay in litigation for so long that was based on I mean, something that was completely not true. Um, you know, like, how do those things drag on forever? And, you know, my clients, basically, I don't know what their recourse could possibly be for fighting this thing for all these years. Like, in that kind of a situation, once we actually go to trial, would they be... Um, able to get back all of their expert fees and attorney's fees and things? It's, it's uh, generally speaking, no. Uh, there That's are, what I thought. The provisions, if the case is totally frivolous, just done for spite or for some other reason, uh, then you can often get it dismissed and get costs. But in the United States, the, basically each party bears his or her own costs for litigation, whether you're prosecuting litigation or defending litigation. So. The fact that the, your your uh, client or the builder or uh, designer here is being sued is some is one of the reasons why it's so popular to buy insurance because as part of your insurance you're going to be provided with a lawyer and your defense is going to be paid for. But the 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 reason that these cases drag on is is that although typically for one side it appears that the case is just totally frivolous and for the other side. They think they've been harmed by whatever, you know, uh, bad design or bad construction is going on. That's why cases are, are so often mediated these days, because you'll get the two sides in a room with a mediator, an impartial third party, who will try to talk some sense into both sides so that each side can see the other's point. And right. Well, and in this case, they've tried and tried and tried and tried, and she will not budge. Yeah, well, that's why you end up try, having to try a certain number of cases because, uh, you know, you just give it to the people on the street to decide. What would you say the percentage of mold claims um, that actually go to trial? Because, I mean, I have friends and mentors who, you know, have been consultants for 20 years and they've never gone to trial. Well, 95% of cases generally settle, and I, I don't think mold cases are any different. You know, you... you you re very rarely will you have a trial. It, it's, uh, it's the exception, not the rule. So that's a pretty good rule of thumb, 95%, huh, David? I think it is. It may be more than that. That's what it I thought. 97%. All right, Cliff's got a follow-up question here. Well, actually, what I wanted to do is I wanted to actually change pace a little bit. We do have a lot of indoor environmental professionals that listen to the show, and I'm wondering if you could give any advice to indoor environmental professionals uh, so that they don't get sued, how they can work more professionally and more self-protectively. Yeah, that's, that comes up all the time. That's, that's what, you know, uh, what I wrote about for the uh, Restoration Industry Magazine. Uh, uh, and and the, the key that I, I talked about in that little article that just came out, I think, earlier this, well, last month, was was to, to develop a culture in your company of being self-protective. I think Mike O'Reilly is one of the, the, the superstars of, of considering the legal aspects of whatever he does. And 
you know, so it's important not just to do a good job, but to communicate the good job that you do to your clients so you're managing that client or customer's expectations and document the good job that you did in case that client gets a second opinion or some uh, idea later on that somehow you didn't do what they hired you to do. The other thing is that there's often a disconnect between the client and the service provider with respect to what exactly is going to happen at the end. What is the, the uh, you know, what what is the deliverable in the particular situation? And because these environmental uh, issues are often so complicated, often, you know, uh, a remediation contractor will come in and somehow, for whatever reason, because they're freaked out about the loss or whatever, that the, the, the uh, expectations of the customer are going to be just unrealistic. And it's important for the remediation contractor or the indoor air professional or whatever to make sure that the client understands exactly what is and what is not going to happen when they're done so that there isn't some, um, you know, uh, unfulfilled expectation. You know, plus, you've got to, you know, have decent contracts that are going to, you know, cover your backside when it, some unhappiness occurs. You're going to need to make sure that your employees are properly trained so they don't go saying things to people that they have no business saying. And the, uh, and the, uh, the other thing is just to know the standards in your different, whatever industry, profession it is, and comply with those standards. Make sure that you actually do a good job because, you know, people who try to cut corners or get into areas that they have no business getting into are the people who are asking for trouble. That's the perfect segue into my next question here, David or Marianne, whoever um, keeps up with these things. As far as new regulations and, and what new regulations are either, you know, on the horizon or close to being promulgated that IAQ professionals and mold remediators should be familiar with? Well, you know, what that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, it's important to actually, you know, keep up with your, your field is because you get these things sneak up on you. And what, what has happened a lot of times, what we've seen in, in people doing, you know, sort of disaster recovery work is that they'll go in and they'll start messing around with some, you know, uh, damaged asbestos or, um, you know, some other uh, product or, or toxin that can, um, you know, they, they could just sort of stumble upon and create some problems for themselves. The, the area of mold is generally not regulated. Yeah. But, yeah. But the, the um, thing that I would caution people about is the, uh, within the last couple of months, the EPA has promulgated some new regulations having to do with renovations of property that disrupt um, potential lead-based paint. And so I would be on the lookout for that. And if you go back here, you know, and, on Google and just look up EPA regulations lead, you'll probably come up with the, the latest um, uh, lead regulation. But people can, can find themselves breaching that regulation without even knowing it quite easily. So that, that would be the one I'd be, you know, asking people to take a look at and see if it affects their business. You know, we haven't talked about insurance too much yet, and that is the one area where there's been some uh, change in, in, in mold, as I, as I recall in Massachusetts, that, that um, there's a, a requirement, but it's a fairly low level of coverage for um, property owner insurance to cover mold claims, but at a low level, like $15,000. So you've seen uh, that kind of compromise worked out between the insurance industry and uh, the state government in our state, and, and clearly that's something to keep your eye on. Um, nationwide. It depends on, and I'm, I'm, and there are different kinds of policies that offer different kinds of coverage. But we often have situations where folks come in to see us with uh, um, fairly serious mold uh, uh, problems, and uh, their insurance coverage is quite limited, 50000 or less. I've got a question from a listener here, and it goes back to the issue of, um, I guess, contract documents and reports. Is there any value in having a limitation of liability statement in a report? I, it, 
can't hurt. It, whether it'll actually work or not, I don't know. But it's, you know, I think what, what I would caution people to do on their reports is to, is, you know, uh, is to come up with a standard formula because you don't want to be reinventing the wheel and drafting your report each and every time because it's just not, there's no way to be um, uh, certain that you're covering all of your bases. And, and you know, statements, these throwaway statements and reports, like at the end, something about the health effects or the health benefits or whatever, that's what's going to get people into trouble. So I'd say you got to, well, anything you put in writing, you better be very careful about. All right, Cliff's got one more question for you, and then we're going to go to what we call the roundup here and bring everybody back in and, and go around one more time. Cliff? Well, for the next two weeks, Joe and I are going to be interviewing Dr. Richie Shoemaker, and I was looking for some good questions to ask him, and I was wondering if you could think of anything. Um, well, the... There's got to be some. He testified at that trial that we had in, in Newport. Um, the, the, what I would ask him is um, about the potential problems that his patients might have that are not related to mold, and what, what has he done to make sure that this particular person isn't suffering from some problem that um, there's a you know, clear-cut medical diagnosis or, or, or treatment for, um, before he goes to the mold route. All right. Because I think a lot of these guys just get, get that sense that, you know, you come in. So when, when you bring your car to the, to, to, the, to the shop and you say, I've got such and such a problem, sometimes you send them on the wrong direction. Right. And it's best just to describe the symptoms and let the doctor take care of the problem. Agreed. All and, right. And, and I think we'll ask him that question. <laughs> Let's go to the roundup, Chris. We're back with the roundup. We've got the Dr. Dieter. Are you on the line there? Yeah, I certainly am. All right. Let's start with you, Dieter. We'll go back around. I, I've got one more. Cliff has one more. And then if uh, David or Marianne has any final comments, we'll get those. Any comments or questions? Uh, yeah, I like the, the last um, comment that David uh, made. you got to be very careful. And Joe and I, for those who don't know, Joe and I, work, we know each other for many, many years, and we work sometimes together. You got to watch out what you're putting into writing. And my philosophy through my whole professional life has been give as little information as possible because you know anything you write down and you sign, somebody can cross-examine you or can examine you on that one. And I don't want to load somebody else's uh, guns by 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 writing something that sounds maybe good at the moment but can you know backfire a couple of years or months or weeks later. On the other hand, I would also like to uh, thank the Governi Law Firm, LLC, for supplying uh, their customers, including me, with very useful advertisements. And this is an in-joke for all of those who don't know what I'm talking about. I know David and Marianne know what I'm talking about. It has, in quotation marks, protect yourself at all times. That's the logo of the corporation. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know what that means is whenever you go to an exhibit or a, a, a meeting or something like this where the governor law firm is uh, attending, uh, look on their desk over there and find, uh, make sure that you get some envelopes which have protect yourself at all times written on them okay <laughs> i think i think joe knows also what i'm talking about i do uh david sounds like you know what he's talking about too huh yeah i have i have a follow-up <laughs> please peter's comment about the the, the uh the, what you put in your report because this is what um causes endless problems for indoor environment professionals anybody right? thank you it's the the, um, you don't want to do anything that's speculation. You know, put down what you see, what you saw, maybe what somebody told you, 
don't make assumptions and jump to conclusions about things you're not sure about because those are inevitably going to come back to haunt you. So I would that's uh, my one caution for writing reports. All right, and I've got a, a quick... I just want to ask if there's anything... I mean, we, we had a bunch of other questions, and I wanted to give both of you a chance if there's anything that we didn't get through or we forgot to ask to please let us know now. Well, I'd like to add for all the restoration contractors out there and folks working on, on jobs, you know, there's a point when these, there's a point often in, unfortunately too often in projects where things start to go south, where expectations are not met, when things happen that are unexpected. And oftentimes we find our clients working harder and harder to try to come up with solutions and not getting paid for this extra work and going outside the terms of the contract and and valiantly trying to solve the problem while they're really kind of compromising themselves legally and they would have been in a better position if they had sort of smelled this coming a little earlier and stepped back and taken um, and taken some measures to extricate themselves from the situation. Do you know what I'm talking about, David? Right. Yeah, it happens all the time. And, and we have clients who will call us in the middle of a, of a project or they see something going south and they want just to, what, what, you know, what should I do? Should I, you know, what's going to make it worse? What's going to make it better? And sometimes just having, whether you're calling a lawyer or your friend who's in the, the, the business, is to get a second opinion to test your uh, options and, and make sure that you're taking the steps that you should be taking to minimize the chances that you're going to get sued. We've got another text question coming in, but while we're waiting for that, how can our listeners contact uh, either one of you if they'd like to talk to you down the road about maybe some assistance with uh, covering their assets? I, I don't know if that was sure. the right terminology. Right. That, that, that you could call it that. We have two ways. You could um, email is D, as in David, governor, G-O-V-E-R-N-O, at governor.com, or... Uh, you could call me at 617-737-9047. All right. One more text question, Cliff. Yeah, this is actually from one of our listeners. The question is, he's an environmental consultant, and he wants to know how long he is liable after he has performed an environmental consulting job. Well, that's going to depend on what state he's in. Uh, that's a, really a matter of local law. That's a great yeah, question. It is a good question, and, and you know, it, it, the typical answer is three years, but it's, it's very variable. Uh, because, but, you know, for instance, that consumer uh, uh, protection statute, in, in Massachusetts, the consumer protection statute has a different statute of limitations than a different cause of action. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not like, oh, yeah, you know, wait three years and then you don't have to worry about anything. It's more complicated than that, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and in fact, it's quite a sophisticated question because oftentimes, and your listener may be thinking of this, uh, uh, consulting work can be performed, renovation work can be performed, uh, architects, engineers can work on building a building or renovating a building and go off and seven, eight, nine, ten years will pass before a problem will arise. And the consultant is perhaps asking, well, how long am I, uh, 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 do, I have to, um, do I have to worry? And in other fields like uh, exposure to toxic chemicals, there's pretty much um, no limit. We have cases where we defend asbestos manufacturers where the symptoms of asbestos-related disease don't manifest themselves until 25 or 30 years later. And that manufacturer might still be liable because the clock doesn't start to tick until um, the injury manifests itself. Well, the law has imposed certain protections on engineers and architects in many states. And most states have what's called a statute of repose. It says once you've finished your work, no after six years, you're free to to have no more concern as to whether you might be sued, even about problems that might develop as a result of your work after that six years has passed. Well, here in Massachusetts, the question of how does that statute of repose apply to consultants such as your listener is one that's not, not fully um, 
uh, fully decided or resolved by the courts up here. So it's a long answer, gentlemen. It's not an easy question. Well, actually, he came up with another question, which I think is, is really good. He has a follow-up question, and that is, how long should we keep files? So if I've done a consulting job, if I've written a report, how long should I keep this? It's generally speaking, seven years. Okay. What do you think, Mary? Well, that's another really complicated question because the, the courts, especially the federal courts, have, have uh, really come down on this whole issue of document retention and, and, and the requirement on people who are sued to produce all their documents, their emails from their, from their cell phones and, and their portable computers, and everything should be um, produced unless you've set forth a document retention policy where you've decided as a, as a concern that you're not going to retain these documents. And if you have that kind of a policy and you throw out all these things on a regular basis as part of that policy and not, not in response to a threatened lawsuit, then you can protect yourself. A listener might consider, well, maybe I'll make it my policy to retain the final work product, the test results, the invoice, the proof of payment. But if I have other less important documents, I'll make it my practice in all situations not to retain those documents. That's some great advice. Great, great advice. Well, I'd like to uh, thank this week's guests, David Governo and Mary Ann Brown. We really appreciate having both of you on IAQ Radio this week. Hopefully we'll get you. you back again. Great. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, guys. Thanks great, for having us. Great show. Um, I also want to thank the wingman, Chris Boisel, and my co-host, the Z-man. Always a pleasure, Chuck. <laughs> All right, Cliff. And, uh, of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. But most it's importantly, thank you, Dieter. Uh, most importantly, I really, really want to uh, thank our growing group of loyal listeners. You had some great questions today. Keep them coming. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Would like sponsors. Well, we might as well thank the sponsors one more time as okay. well. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 